0: And not only not white, but the rise of groups that are not male. That's the Mm. other half of it.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, Ideas from the CBC, Democracy Now!, and The Young Turks.
2: The United States has 4% of the world's population, a little bit over 4%, and it has 43% of the world's privately owned guns, long and short guns. In other words, the gun ownership is 10 times the population percentage here in the United States. So I think it's fair to say that that Americans, or United States citizens, have an attachment to guns as well as to gun violence that is out of proportion to that anywhere else literally on the planet. So it, it does invite the question, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why is the attachment to guns what it is? And I was hoping since this is has to be at least in part a psychological question, What is it that attaches Americans, particularly now in our history, to guns on this scale? What what can you help us understand? Well,
3: part of it is the media in which male gun violence is featured. Clint Eastwood, macho man, rides off alone, doesn't have any support system of other human beings he can count on, just like the fellow who shot the 59 people, Mr. Paddock whose girlfriend was in the Philippines, we don't know whether she left. In my study of them, all of them previously have had either a woman who left them or a job that fired them. He was—he had made $2 million and lived off of it as a gambler for 30 years, so he was not fired. We don't know what his girlfriend Mary Lou was doing in the Philippines and not with him, but. Those are the emblems of masculinity in our toxically gendered culture, having access to a woman who's loyal to you and having weapons. Now, it's a combination, as always, of capitalism's bloody hand and gender psychology. And what happens is that when guns are sold in the United States, they're not sold as buy a gun, make the gun manufacturers and the ammunitions producers who are wildly rich, even richer. It's buy a gun because it is your male freedom, because it makes you a real man, because it makes you able to defend your freedom, and so that It's all mixed up with toxic masculinity. That's why the gun shooters of all the mass killings are male. They're also overwhelmingly white, much more disproportionately white than whites are in our population, because it's white men who capitalism has dethroned. They used to get double bonuses, one for being white and another for being male, in a scarce labor force where they were the manufacturing sector. A strong man could get a good job as long as he was white. Well, now that the big capitalists of the United States can export their jobs to people who make, you know, $38 a week, why bother with these white men? They've thrown them on the slag heap. Now, a lot of the jobs in our more service economy are held by women. And so that partly it's that they don't want to face that the people who dethroned them from their male throne are not women or minorities or immigrants, but the capitalists. They like to suck up and kick down, and they're happy to kick down on immigrants, women, and minorities. And the gun owners are laughing all the way to the bank. They also, politics comes into the mix because the NRA gave Trump $30 million for his campaign efforts and his inauguration. Therefore, Trump gets up, invokes God, and that this is an evil man, says nothing about guns, asks everyone to to pray and to bring themselves together with family, which family he's bringing himself together, of the three of them, we don't know, and uh, to believe that God is the light and God loves suffering people, you know, really. Trump, who makes people loser, loser, you know, makes people suffer right and left. But that, so it's politics is in there, capitalism is in there, and the psychology of building up men who have been dethroned through guns. There's an ad, which is particularly illustrative, for the Bushmiller Automatic Weapon.
2: Bushmaster, I think
3: it is. Bushmaster. Obviously, and I'm not into this. But it says, does your girlfriend or wife earn more money than you? Revoke your man card. Do you prefer tofu to meat? Revoke your man card. And it goes through about 10 things. Then it says, Buy the Bushmaster automatic weapon. Reinstate your manhood. So it's like buying testosterone cream. You reinstate your manhood. You've been dethroned. You no longer can support a dependent wife and children who work for you all the time This wife.
2: So but- there's, there's an argument, if I follow your logic, there's an argument that particularly white men have been systematically economically disadvantaged. They had certain kinds of advantages. They don't have them anymore. And they don't have the prospect of regaining them anytime soon either. Or the perks that went with them. So they get depressed in large numbers. The reason I I raise this is economists have been struggling to explain something called reduced labor force participation particularly white men in the ages 25 to 60 are dropping out of the labor force. They, they need a job, they need income, but they are not, in fact, going back to get jobs. They don't want them, or they can't stand them, or they're dissatisfied with the income. This suggests what you're telling us is that not going back, dropping out, is a reflection of the depressed conditions of employment that they face. And it immediately suggests, if I follow you and I'd like your opinion, that another way that a white male who's lost his job and can't get another good quality, say, manufacturing or construction job, one of the ways to shore himself up, particularly when he has no meaningful work he can get, would be this gun culture and the gun celebration. And if then you combine this sort of celebratory gun ownership with depressed people, then you begin to get the sense, well, if something unfortunate happens to that individual, you become not just depressed and have a lot of guns, but you actually use them in a socially destructive way. So
3: To reinstate your manhood. You know, you go down in a blaze of glory, reinstating your manhood through killing people. You know, I remember seeing a bus ad where there was a guy with a gun standing there and showing, I have the power. You know, that is male power. Another thing that's happening to men is that their suicide rates are higher than they've been for 30 years male and, children
2: and again it's the white and male their, the white rates male
3: that... rate of suicide is going through the roof because their future they can't see a future we don't have a vibrant movement that really attracts people to a left alternative bernie began that and was shot down and there the fascist movement luckily the alt right is not that popular but that uh, but they too You recapture your lost manhood, make America great again, i.e., make America white again and make you on top again. Now, most divorces are initiated by women because the old way was that women served men in the home in exchange for being supported economically and having a protected place to raise their children. Well, now they're not supported economically while they're expected to do the lion's share of housework and childcare and get jobs. And it's a bad deal. Even in the red states, where divorces are even greater than they are in the blue states, women initiate divorce.
2: Which means, again, to go back to something you said earlier, that there's going to be a sizable part of the white male population. That is disconnected from the kinds of jobs they either once had or expected they would have. And also in a sense, dethroned at home
3: as well as at the workplace. Personally and professionally.
2: So that if these two things come together in the same individual, we can see a level of stress and anguish and bitterness. That could then, in people who have a personal problem of one kind or another, explode in the manner of this uh, Mr. Paddock.
3: Particularly if they don't have a movement to go to, which explains it to them and helps them have the power to be a group of people who take their country and make it serve them instead of only the rich. We don't really have that kind of vibrant movement. That's why in Europe, where people do killing, they do it in the name of a political Goal, not here. It's random and personal.
4: It has been a huge week for women. Starting last week, when America encountered this season's second giant vortex of destructive moisture named Harvey. Hollywood grappling with the mounting sexual harassment scandal against Harvey Weinstein, one of the industry's power players. Weinstein, the studio head behind Pulp Fiction, Goodwill Hunting, and Shakespeare in Love. Remind me never to rent the producer's cut of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> When the scandal broke, Weinstein made an apology-like statement in the New York Post saying, I've got to change. I've got to grow. I know a lot of people would like me to go into a facility. Oh my God, I'm so behind on the slang. Is a facility what people call hell? (laughs) At least in, at least in Weinstein's letter, he showed concern for the victims, specifically himself.
0: I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior in workplaces were different. That was the culture
5: then.
4: give me a break, White Cosby. Nobody asked for your all-about-mia-culpa. Don't blame the 60s and 70s for your shitty decision-making. It's serial sexual harassment, not a monkey's tattoo. (laughs) The stories emerging from the actual victims paint a real picture of Harvey Weinstein, specifically a Hieronymus Bosch picture. Oh, look! Casual Friday at the Weinstein Company.
6: He cornered me in this vestibule. And um, leaned in and and tried to kiss me, which I immediately rebuffed. And I thought it would end there. But that's when he blocked the entrance or exit for me. He immediately um, exposed himself and, you know, began pleasuring himself.
4: Pleasure? I'm sorry, I seem to have completely forgotten what that word means. But these are just some of the sexual harassment allegations we know about Harvey Weinstein. Asking Ashley Judd to watch him shower and masturbating to Lauren Savan before ejaculating into a potted plant is just the beginning. And for anyone who questions her story, the evidence was clear when that plant bore fruit the following spring. <laughs> There's even a recording made by the NYPD of Weinstein admitting to assault. Of course, they didn't like charge him or anything. It's not Mariska Hargitay's New York, but at least they made a recording. I'm not going to play it here because, well, ladies, we've heard it all before. It's all, "Uh my gross little pee-pee will get so sad if you don't come in this room with me. Uh I'm going to ruin your career. Uh You're making my dick feel so sad. (laughs) The reporting goes on after that for, I want to say, a month. <laughs> Predictably, Republicans popped a few Tic Tacs and moved on the Weinstein scandal like a bitch for partisan gain.
7: Hollywood is outspoken on President Trump, but has next to nothing to say about Harvey Weinstein.
2: If, if these allegations are true, you know, the past 20 years of Weinstein's life have been one long Trump access Hollywood video. It's, it's r- ridiculously uh, hypocritical of him.
4: Yes, Weinstein is exactly as bad as Trump. I demand that we impeach Harvey Weinstein immediately. Call your representative in the Hollywood Congress and demand they act now. I mean, look. Both parties have had their share of sexual harassers and predators. This is about men. Sorry, woke bros, but guys can be creeps. Hashtag not all men. The extent of their creepiness seems to be a surprise to everyone except women. That's why all the men on my staff have a strict code of conduct. It's for their own protection. We women have known men were gross since our sixth grade gym teachers said, good job at the end of class, then massaged our shoulders that were somehow on the front of our bodies. And it doesn't get any better in adulthood because sexual harassment is rampant in every profession imaginable. Medicine, finance, technology, academia. Publishing. Restaurants. We tried to find one place where women were safe, so we Googled sexual harassment Antarctica, and we found this article from five fucking days ago! (laughs) You can't even go to the most remote part of the planet without some dude swinging his cold, shriveled dick your way. (laughs) No wonder Harvey thinks the entertainment industry will support him. There's one industry that isn't even trying to get rid of sexual predators, and that is politics. But showbiz is finally starting to clean house. Only a little, but it is something. So listen up, creeps of Hollywood. We know who you are. Weinstein isn't the only cool Democrat lurking in film festival hotels waiting to play a jolly masturbation prank. Women talk to each other. And we talk to journalists. And we talk to lawyers. It's 2017. We don't have to put up with this shit. We are coming for you. Talk to (laughs) everyone work with like she has the New York Times on speed dial. Well, I guess it took the Times a little while to take care of business. Okay, talk to every woman like she has me on speed dial. <laughs> My show is only once a week. I've got some free time.
7: We're joined in conversation by Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist Christopher Hedges and Dr. Tyaya alfred who directs the Indigenous Governance Program at the University of Victoria. What accounts for what they're calling the apparent nuttiness of gun culture,
0: both here and in the United States? The uh, The gun culture in the United States is really born in the 19th century. The gun culture, as we know it, didn't really exist at the time of the revolution because everybody kind of had guns and there wasn't a need to fetishize guns. It happens in the 19th century as the United States starts to urbanize and it closes its frontier. Closing its frontier is a euphemism for having shuffled all the Indians off to reservations and all that stuff. Um, so the gun culture is born as the United States is exterminating its indigenous peoples.
8: And you can't get away from that. And it all grows from there. Racism is the engine that is that drives America. And because basically you have, you know, especially aging white male males who've been pushed out of the workplace, you know, they're. They're falling into a kind of despair, reminds me, by the way, of the breakdown of the former Yugoslavia, and they watch the rise of groups that are not white. I mean, we are headed to become a nation that I don't know when, how many more decades, that will not be majoritarian white, and that strikes fear in these people. So I, and, and the rise of groups like militias, like the Tea Party, the Christian Right, which fetishizes guns, uh, you, you know, all, all of these groups go back to this fear that that white supremacy is under assault.
0: And not only um, not white, but the rise of groups that are not male. That's the Mm. other half
8: of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Mm.
0: It's uh, beleaguered masculinity is a big part of uh, this
8: culture. it's It's pathetic masculinity.
7: Agreed. Which would certainly explain probably one of the most famous Canadian incidents involved in this kind of nutty gun culture. And that would be the Montreal Massacre.
0: Right. And I would say, you know, I do have the chapter that deals with mass shootings and I kind of resisted uh, having a chapter on mass shootings for a while because the mass shooter, I, I view him not as a part of the gun culture so much um, as a consequence of the gun culture. But what happens with these guys is is your mass shooter is is typically a kind of narcissistic loser with delusions of grandeur, and he has to latch on to some ideology that's already out there in the air. And in the case of the Montreal massacre. It was the anti-feminist backlash that he's latched onto. And we see this again and again that Anders Breivik in, in Norway latches to the anti-Muslim thing going on in Europe. So that's, they're always grabbing onto these things.
7: Chris, does the example of Blair Mountain in West Virginia, Andrew talks about it in the book and we talked about it earlier in the conversation, does that hold any insights for you? Does, does race ever enter into the question?
8: Blair Mountain, along with the Shea Rebellion at the end of the Revolutionary War, were attempts to uh, challenge uh, encroaching power in the case of Blair Mountain by the unions, uh, in the case of the Shea Rebellion by the federal government. Um, But they are rarities within American culture. Uh, We have, of course, 40% of American households own weapons. Uh, We have... You know, they're pervasive throughout the country, but the, it's coupled with this kind of odd fact that Americans don't have a tradition of turning their weapons against the government. And of course, most of these uprisings, I'll take Blair Mountain, were about specific local injustices, not challenging the system of white supremacy and capitalism. Although it's interesting that the miners were racially and ethnically mixed and And when they rose up, uh as Andrew said, when the federal government was called in to crush it they they buried their weapons and went home uh One of the little known facts about Blair Mountain is that they were using the miners were using new Winchester rifles. Uh, and it's largely assumed that the United Mine Workers had, had shipped down crates uh, of those weapons, something the United Mine Workers would never say in their official history. Um, but that was really – I mean these people – is and I think Andrew got that in the book and and I spent a lot of time in, in southern West Virginia for my own book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, and write about this incident as well. Uh, they were really pushed to the breaking point. Remember, this wasn't just uh, Sid Hatfield, but miners were being murdered, evicted from their homes um and you know they they were they were pushed to the breaking point they didn't after that uprising the the unions did not gain legitimacy until uh, roosevelt in the late 30s permitted their existence so in the immediate aftermath of that uprising the mine owners won
1: As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, listeners more specifically like Nejla L. and Taylor H., both of whom went above and beyond signing up at the professional protester level, so thanks so much to them for their support and to all of the members and donors who help keep this show going. Members get access to a special members-only podcast feed that you can subscribe to just like any other podcast, which includes ad-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content. And now, honestly, would be a great time to start supporting the show, and it's never been easier now that we're set up on Patreon so that you can use either a PayPal account or a regular old credit card to sign up. And as I've mentioned recently, we're in a strange bit of an advertiser drought, which makes membership contributions even more important than usual. So as I always say, and I really do mean this, whether you can only chip in a buck a month 20. We really appreciate any support you can give, so please think about signing up. Find us on Patreon or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started.
9: And Louise you you ask in your uh, um in your blog post a question that's that's very pertinent uh first of all because this practice is so widespread uh, and not just among uh, extremely powerful men although in that case uh it's more silencing uh to the people who are subject to their sexual violence you ask in your blog post why is it that women carry the shame of their abusers can you talk about that why is that?
10: I think it's uh, I think it's partly conditioning, and that goes back to your childhood. It goes back to um, this culture of compliance that we have um, in our parenting, in our education system, and we focus so much on that and not on building relationships and connection that uh, we we end up um, very vulnerable to either then discovering that the way to get things is by being a bully, which is what happened to Harvey, clearly, uh, or you end up at the other end of that power dynamic where you um, are more vulnerable uh, to finding yourself in these kind of situations. And the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study has shown that people who've experienced childhood trauma or adversity are much more likely to be victims of sexual assault later. And so you end up one or the other side of this dynamic. And if you're on the side of the person who is being targeted, you feel like it's your fault. And I know that tony Ann has said that in in her reporting of the incidents, that she felt like it was her fault. But there's not a lot to contradict you. They're your friends and family, out of love for you, want to protect you. They tell you, don't say anything, uh, even as, as as recently as yesterday. Steer clear of this. Keep your nose clean. Don't get involved. And the message is, you will be doing something wrong. At least that's how I perceive it. You will be doing something wrong. You'll be rocking the boat. You will be bringing all the shame upon your head and if you do, well, you know, that's on you, which is a bit like saying, if you find yourself alone with Harvey, that's on, like, that's on you. Or it's like saying, if you wore that dress, that's on you. And you can extend it all the way back to, and if you're a woman, you should just expect to be a target of men.
5: I want to ask you about the second part, uh, this issue of trauma, and that's something that you deal with mm-hmm. today. Uh, your piece, My Encounter with Harvey Weinstein, and what it tells us about trauma, if you could expand on that.
10: Yes, absolutely. We we train professionals in uh, trauma-informed care, and Tamian has already covered the three primary responses when you're in survival mode, the fight, flight, freeze. But um, I think that what I have learned after writing that blog and experiencing the fallout is that we need to educate everybody about trauma so that people can become trauma-informed, not just the friends and family I'm talking about who actively were um, trying to protect me and in and suggesting I did not come forward, but also for the media and the way that this story's been handled. I have to tell you, I've been traumatized, re-traumatized, by some of the conversations I've had with people wanting interviews. And I know these are good people, and I know that they would be trauma-informed if they could be. They just don't have the information. So, for example, when we train uh, legal advocates... Who are working with sexual assault survivors, the first thing that you say is, I believe you. And I had an interview with one of the corporate uh, networks who they, they canceled because the lawyer said, well, you don't have a corroborating story. The reason I don't have a corroborating story is because the person who waited for me in the lobby of the hotel does not want to come forward. And so I went home. And after 26 years cried my eyes out because before I had been a private, embarrassing situation. Now I feel like I'm not believed and the shame that comes with that and the anger that comes with that. So I've learned a lot about how we generally need to become more trauma informed, Uh, believing the survivor and offering support. I would have loved someone to say to me, you brave, brave girl rather than, don't do this, Just sit down, shut up.
5: Well, I wanted to go to one of the people who broke this story, Ronan Farrow. Uh, his interview on Tuesday night with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow about why he published his major investigation into Harvey Weinstein in The New Yorker magazine when he's a contributing correspondent to NBC, this was Farrow's response— you would have to ask
4: NBC and NBC executives about the details of that story. I'm not going to comment on any news organization's story that they um, you know, did or didn't run. Uh, I will say that over many years, many news organizations have circled this story and faced a great deal of pressure in doing so. Mm. And there are now reports emerging publicly about the kinds of pressure that news organizations face in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is real.
5: Uh, by the way, Ronan Farrow is Mia Farrow's son. For more, I want to bring into this conversation um, Erin Komon, who is a journalist and contributing writer at The Washington Post, where she recently published a piece headlined, Women Shouldn't Trust the Men Who Call Themselves Allies. She's also an author of the New York Times bestseller, Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, Irene, Talk about why you're raising this issue now, and start with what Ronan Farrow just said, this issue of um, he—NBC spiked the story.
9: Amy, the first thing I want to say is I'm astonished by the courage of the women who are talking about this right now. And if you want to see how hard it is, all you have to do is listen to the words that Ronan said. He was able to do something that journalists have been trying to do for a long time, which is— publish a story, not just report on a story, but reach to publication a story that documented what is clearly a systemic pattern of abuse from Harvey Weinstein. And one of the reasons that they weren't able to do that is because the standard is so high for corroborating details in a way that often re-victimizes people. And by re-victimizing—by asking for this kind of corroboration— uh, networks are trying to insulate themselves from legal threats. The fact that this is a powerful man who managed to uh, get the best counsel that money could buy, who was extremely well-connected, who effectively bought off people who were an impediment to him, shows what a difficult journey it was just to get these stories to come to light. So I think that that's job number one. You mentioned the hunting ground. I mean, Harvey Weinstein was somebody who, among other people that, that he sort of bought off or implicated, whether they knew it or not in the kind of behavior in which he was engaging, are advocates for women's rights. He funded a professorship in Gloria Steinem's name. He uh, went to the Women's March in Utah during the Sundance Film Festival. So. On the one hand, you know, for myself as a feminist, I would love to welcome men to this fight. We cannot do it by ourselves. Uh, We can't have a one-sided revolution. This has to be something where gender roles are revolutionized for everyone, for a more safe and equal world. But when you have people who are putting on the cloak of gender equality as a way to hide their misdeeds, I think all of us need to stop and say, what truly constitutes an ally? When is somebody just talking the talk and and using uh, the good faith of women, which, by the way, we're also socialized to give men the benefit of the doubt uh, as, a, as a cover to abuse us.
3: What's very interesting is to look at the history, I find that just amazing. Between 1949 and 1966, there were no mass shootings. Between 1966 and 1984, there were no mass shootings. Starting in 1984, they became more and more frequent. Until now, they are very frequent. There have been 152 in 2017. Huge. And if you, there's a wonderful book by Mark Ames called Going Postal. And it looks at the beginning of what happened with mass shootings in the 1980s. In in 1984 was the first big one. It's called Going Postal because it began with the post office, a rash of shootings at the post office because Reagan was the first to start smashing up the American dream to start smashing up the unions with the traffic control workers and others, to start changing the estate tax and the taxation rate on the wealthy to make the middle class and the lower pay it all. And what the post office had a powerful union, 30,000 people, very progressive union. And Reagan began just about at, the, you know, before these killings, substituting the supervisors who used to be elected from between, from among the ranks and understand what went on with business school graduates who saw the postal workers in an adversarial way, pushing them harder and harder to do more and more and promoting those who complied, creating enormous rage. It was the beginning of the crunching down of the working class. And with that, the rage at not being able to make a living, have a decent job, have control over your life that you could see, okay, I'll do my job. I'll do it well. I'll be connected on this, in this job, in this union. I will then retire. I will have a pension. I will support my wife and children. Their dreams will be greater than mine. I'm a blue collar, they'll be a white collar. There. I'm a white collar, they'll be a professional. That's dead. That doesn't happen anymore. And
2: so the argument their of,
3: male perk of being, I am a man, I support my family, that's over.
2: So that the argument you're making that comes from Ames is that in a sense, the post office crisis and explosion we didn't know it then, but was a harbinger of what was to going to happen in a wider and wider range of jobs, particularly in well-paid blue-collar work, but also in other professions. Driving, you know, people to feel, particularly white men, disconnected from the workplace and the work culture, and also dethroned at home, because I. I What I appreciate so much about what you're telling us is that the economics and the psychology are being brought into the story. We're not being left with the empty statement, it's evil, or the empty blaming of the individual. No one is going to defend Mr. Paddock for the horrible damage he did, but this is because of the history you've shown us, this is a social problem. This is affecting large numbers of people, even though there are particular reasons why this individual or that individual uh, is the one who blows up finally. If we don't deal with the social problems, we're allowing the pressures then to build up that will explode in one or another individual on a growing scale, as you've shown us, has already happened.
3: I absolutely agree. And one of the things that Mr. Paddock illustrates is a problem that American men have. Usually their only emotional connection is with their sex partner. And if she leaves, they're utterly disconnected. As the country music song says, you've been thinking and I've been drinking. Now, male alcoholism is going way up along with drug abuse, but that One of the things that happens is that men are emotionally disconnected, especially if they're not working and even having the camaraderie on the job, even if it isn't intimate divulgences and secrets, it's a, a sense of being part of something. This man had not been working on a job for 30 years and his girlfriend was in the Philippines. I don't know whether she was leaving or whatever, but she certainly, that's, she She wasn't with him. She sure wasn't with him. And that women, when they have an emergency, connect. They've found, because they always used to only study men, that the fight and flight idea when something's terrifying in women is fright and connect. When women are in trouble, they connect with their women friends, and they usually have stronger bonds emotionally with other women than they do with their husbands. They connect with their families. They connect with their children so that they are not emotionally abandoned when they're not on the job. And usually they describe the killer not only as a white and a male, but a loner, doesn't talk to his neighbors, doesn't have friends, disconnected from his family. He hadn't talked to one brother for 20 years. The other was a couple of years when he inquired about his mom's health, you know, that he's a disconnected man because connection is crucial to mental health. And there's a toxic idea that you're not a real man if you cry, if you need support, if you need help, if you reach out to others. And that is a terrible blight, particularly as men have been dethroned from their white male family wage status because they don't get a family wage.
2: So their lack of connection is happening historically at the same time that their job and home situations put them in greater need of connection than ever before. That is an unbelievable pressure on these people and it begins to make it remarkable that there aren't more explosions exactly. of violence or whatever. And the, the gun is simply the mechanism for the expression of all of this. And
3: of oh, taking back your manhood, you know,
2: provoke well, very- your
3: manhood, take back your manhood, reinstate your manhood, because it's associated. They're taking men who are feeling dethroned and unmanned. And they're giving them the masculinity back with a gun. By saying, this is about your freedom. This is about your manliness. This is about your right to defend your family. This is about reinvoking your manhood, giving it back. This is me. And people are desperate. You know, there have been 152 mass shootings. In nineteen seven in, in twenty seventeen, and we're not even done. You know, we have four more months. But that it's really no wonder, and that that has to be looked at rather than this is pure evil, which is what Trump said quite conveniently. It's also ironic the, that the NRA, which did give Trump thirty million, and is politically pushing this point of view. They even have a target you can order from the NRA called the ex-girlfriend target, where you shoot it and it starts to bleed until its face is demolished and its whole body is blown away. They don't have a comparable boyfriend target because it's overwhelmingly a male thing. And ironically, they started this harvest festival, Route 91, Harvest Festival, to give the NRA a gentler image by starting a country music festival. And it was at this festival that 59 people were killed and 515 were wounded, many critically. What do you think should be done? Well, I think the first of all, it's rather a broken record with me, people need a movement. What Bernie started has to be built. There has to be an alternative where people can come together and say, this is our land. This land is your land. This land is my land, as Woody Guthrie said. And that it doesn't belong to the bankers who happen to own most of it (laughs) in property. We can take it back. We can take it back as we did in the New Deal. We can take it back with the tax rate on the top, that is the 90, what is it, 94.8% tax rate. We can take those two and a half, no, 2.3 trillion that are in overseas investments back. The Canary Islands are not going to set out a military force to oppose us.
6: Have aggressively gone after liberals following allegations that Harvey Weinstein had sexually harassed or sexually assaulted dozens of women. Now, Margaret Hoover, who is a conservative, felt the need to call other conservatives out on their hypocrisy. And I just wanna give her some credit because I think this was bold. I think that this was very much true. And I think it takes guts to uh, speak out against conservatives and uh, how incredibly contradictory
5: they are on this issue. Take a look. It's shocking to me how differently the left and the right has handled major sex scandals. When Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes uh, were revealed to be predatory, I can point to two people in the conservative universe who said this is bad behavior and it is not conservative. One was Peggy Noonan, one was David French at National Review. Nothing else from anyone else. On the left, you have movie star after politician, after U.S. senator disassociating himself, disavowing, condemning bad behavior. And a really stark contrast culturally between how the political left and the political right handle this situation.
6: Wow. That was admirable. I'm glad that she said that because you, you don't hear that criticism much on cable news. Um, Cuomo said a few things about that as well. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm happy that there's another conservative pointing this out because this isn't, this shouldn't be a political issue. Regardless of someone's political affiliation or political identity, it has to do with people in positions of power who use that position of power to prey on those who have no power. And I don't care if it's a liberal, I don't care if it's a progressive, I don't care if it's a conservative. If someone is preying on others the way that Weinstein has, the way that Roger Ailes did, the way that Bill O'Reilly did, then they should be condemned. And I don't care about their political affiliation whatsoever.
11: So uh, Margaret Hoover used to be at Fox News and and there, they uh, for a long, long time uh, circled the wagons, uh, and eventually the executives, because partly because they wanted a multi-billion-dollar deal done in the UK, uh, changed direction. But a lot of the people on air for a long time, nope, stuck with Ailes, stuck with O'Reilly, uh, no matter what. And now they're gleeful. They're like, yes, we found one liberal who's as much of a prick as Trump, Ailes, O'Reilly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Bowling, whatever you name it, right? So they're like, Oh yeah, what? Condemn, condemn. We want you to condemn. No, Hillary condemned, but she didn't do it quickly enough. No, she should have done it nanoseconds afterwards. She shouldn't even finish reading the story. She should have condemned right away. Obama, he didn't condemn quickly enough. Okay. Now what is, that's a thing that didn't condemn quickly enough. You know, Chris Hayes pointed out on Twitter, uh, today that one of Obama's daughters interned at the Weinstein company. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, they didn't know, otherwise they wouldn't have sent their daughter to intern there. So they never knew, and then once they found out, they condemned him. You guys, a lot, most of the right wing, as Margaret Hoover just pointed out, never condemned Roger Ailes or Bill O'Reilly. Sean Hannity just had Bill O'Reilly on his show, then turns around and goes, why won't they condemn Weinstein? Yeah, that's right. Why won't they condemn him quickly enough, forcefully enough? Why haven't they punched him in the nuts yet? Okay, so no, no, no. We know what it is, and what it is, and what drives it is projection, and they assume that we will protect Weinstein, we as in progressives, right? right? Because they protect, right or wrong, their guys. They Sean Hannity thinks, yeah, Roger Ailes harassed and and assaulted many women would take out his penis and run around the room chasing after women according to the stories. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was sued, he settled cases, they made payments, he was fired. It's proven over and over again, but I don't care. He's my flasher, he's my guy. And He's he on gave my me, team. Yeah, he's on my team. And, and so that's, so I love Roger Ailes, right? So he assumes we will do likewise. But the reality is, we don't care. We we condemn that kind of behavior, no matter where they are in the political spectrum. In fact, Harvey Weinstein's excuse the day after it was even more gross. Yeah. So he did this apology, and I hadn't read the New York Times story yet. I'm like, oh, the first half of that apology sounds fine. The second half is really weird. Then I went back and read the story, and I'm like, oh. So the second half of the apology was like, I you know I will be fighting against the NRA yeah, even more. Yeah, deflecting. I like, wait, what does the NRA have anything to do with this? It
6: has nothing to do with it. It was him trying to pander to, you know. Liberals, because he thought,
11: oh, well, remember, guys, I'm on your side. No, don't you're not. Don't
1: care at yes. all.
11: <laughs> and he's like, and I will be naming, a you know, I'll be giving more money in a favor of women. And I'll be naming it after my mom. And I don't want to let her down. Dude, you should have thought about that before the potted plant. Okay, mm-hmm. and so it's a little late. And don't hide behind your mom. Don't do that. So we're not like the right wing. We're not gonna defend you because you think you're on our team. So if, if those, the guys that, that, that did know him wanna take a couple of days and figure out, did he actually do it? Mm-hmm. And then once they, they're sure, condemn him, that's perfectly fine. For all those Republicans still defending Bill O'Reilly, and yes, Donald Trump, who bragged about, just like Weinstein, I'm famous So I can grab and grope them all they like, and all I like, and there's nothing they could do about it. He's the guy you voted for, and all those conservatives on air still defend to this day. So please spare us your crocodile tears about Weinstein. You guys are the ones who don't care at all.
7: How central then is gun culture now to, say, political culture, um, almost any culture, but political culture? How important is gun culture to the politics of either the United States or Canada? Chris, start well,
8: with In the United States, it's key um, and is a dividing line between those who, I would argue, fetishize weapons and those that don't, and uh, no Republican candidate is uh, going to run afoul of the NRA, and no Democratic candidate wants to take the NRA on. So, because it's, a, it's just a losing proposition, it's such a powerful lobby at this point. So, not only is it important, but unfortunately, the ideology that is, you know, driving this kind of gun culture is one that cannot even be seriously challenged through establishment political mechanisms. And we've seen it with Obama, you know, after these shootings, he keeps trying to pass a ban on assault weapon. And it just never works. And the Democrats just don't want to take it on. They don't want to get out there because it's too politically costly.
7: Chris, is there, is there one point, one incident, one event that, that has brought it all home to you that, that has sort of made it perfectly clear that gun culture is absolutely central to the American ethos?
8: Well, you know, Andrew writes about the Newtown Massacre. I would say that because, I mean, here you had, what was it, 20 little elementary school children shot down, murdered, uh, in a town in Connecticut. And let's be clear, they were white. So, you know, that evoked a kind of, I mean, children are shot, black children are shot in Chicago almost every day. Um, and it doesn't evoke the same kinds of responses, which I think another is a window into the, Endemic racism within American culture, buttressed by the American media. Um, but so we have twenty little white children all killed, and we can't budge. We can't make any changes to this insane. I mean, Remington makes the AR-15. Remington makes hunting rifles. Um, there are an estimated 1.5 million of these semiotic weapons, which are largely useless for hunting. I mean, certainly useless for hunting large animals. Uh, um, they're assault weapons, and they spray bullets, and they're designed to kill people. And we can't, we can't even get a ban on AR fifteen semi assault rifles.
7: And after every such incident, I mean, it can happen anywhere in the United States. There is usually then a general outcry that lasts for two minutes or two days or whatever. But well, because but,
8: the power structure is impotent, the power structure can't, they can't. There is nothing they can do to stay the hand of the gun manufacturers.
7: So what could be done that would actually start the conversation? I mean, we're, we're in this sort of culture of war with people who are pro-gun and people who are anti-gun. And they say that they need to have a conversation. At least those who are anti-gun say there needs to be a conversation. How do we get that conversation started? I mean, what well, does can't. it take?
8: It's not, it's not a rational conversation because most of these people think they they have their weapons in their homes for when the federal government comes to get them. Um, and well, I can that's the First you,
7: Amendment, isn't it? I mean, that's why the, there is a right to bear arms. Right.
8: But I can assure you the moment a SWAT team shows up, they're going to run out of the house with their hands up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that you're going to take your AR-15 and hold off, you know, a trained platoon or SWAT is insane. Um, and, you know, I covered the Middle Wars in the Middle East and Yugoslavia. Everybody had guns and they often had AK-47s. But, uh, you know, at a moment like that, it's kind of suicidal. So it's a fiction. Um, I really think it really goes back to economics. I think these people have been disenfranchised economically. Um, I think they feel i don 't think they feel under assault um, because again let 's go back that this is really the domain of aging white males uh They feel under assault from the rise of groups that challenge their uh self identity and empowerment uh sense of privilege. And as the economic situation in the United States deteriorates uh, into this kind of neo-feudalism, where we have two-thirds of the country hanging on by their fingertips, it exacerbates this culture. Uh, so if you go travel through the south in the United States, which I did recently... You will see one Confederate memorial after another. The rise of this neo-Confederate movement is very intimately tied to the gun culture and the fetishizing guns and white supremacy. Uh, and most of them have been put up in the last decade or two. And when you retreat into that mythic narrative, um, I was in Montgomery a little while ago and they were just reenacting the inauguration of Jefferson Davis who led the, was the president of, of the Confederacy. He was originally uh, inaugurated in Montgomery. That was the first seat of the Southern White House. So you had, and Montgomery's half black. I mean, half of the population is African-American. And you had these, you know, kind of dead-end white guys dressed up as Confederate soldiers with some guy dressed up as Jefferson Davis in a carriage going to the steps of the state capitol to reenact an inauguration. And and the rise of that neo uh and we just saw it, you know, with the church shootings, it is emblematic of a kind of economic and psychological deterioration that I think we can only counter by reintegrating these people in a sense back into the society. And if we don't do that, this culture, at least in the United States, is only gonna get worse.
1: We've just heard clips today, starting with Richard Wolff speaking with Harriet Fraud on Economic Update in two parts about understanding the effects of our culture on gun culture. Full Frontal with Samantha Bee presented Listen Up Creeps, the Weinstein edition. Ideas from the CBC spoke in two parts with Christopher Hedges and Professor Tayaya Gay Alfred about understanding how masculinity and white supremacy lead to a nutty gun culture. Democracy Now! spoke with both a sexual assault survivor and a journalist to understand some of the gender and power dynamics at play in the Harvey Weinstein case and others like it. And lastly, there was a conversation on the Young Turks about the way different political groups react to revelations about sex crimes within their ranks. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And I'm going to hold off on voicemails today as I have quite a bit that I want to add to this conversation. Uh, So, you know, the the, the first question is, Seems obvious, right? What's wrong with white guys? What's wrong with white male culture that creates so many violent, sexually deviant people, right? Or is that the wrong question? Are, are you suddenly feeling yourself instinctually reject the idea of grouping all white guys together as a demographic to be studied? You know, is it occurring to you that? Each case of male violence and sexual crime is both individual but also shaped by systemic forces. As I was putting today's show together, I came across uh, this this really nice uh, summation that uh, David Sirota wrote, and, and I don't think this was recent. Um, I think this may be from a few years ago, but David Sirota writes, I said that because most of the mass shootings in America come at the hands of white men, there would likely be political opposition to initiatives that propose to use those facts to profile the demographic group to which these killers belong. I suggested that's the case because as opposed to people of color, or say, Muslims, white men as a subgroup are in such a privileged position in our society that they are the one group that our political system avoids demographically profiling or analytically aggregating in any real way. Indeed, unlike any other demographic, white guys as a group are never thought to be an acceptable topic for any kind of critical discussion whatsoever, even when there is ample reason to open up such discussion." in quote so you know when we talk about the pay gap the best we can do is focus on equal pay for equal work and leave the rest of the blame on women for just making individual choices to do jobs that pay less with no talk of the systemic forces that guide women toward those jobs at higher rates than men. When we talk about the opium epidemic, we see it as a tragedy of lost souls while the crack epidemic is a demonstration of the horrors of black culture. So The question is, do white guys deserve the same treatment as all other subgroups, or do all subgroups deserve to be treated as kindly as white guys do, and seen as individuals impacted collectively by systemic forces? Now, uh, there's a little bit more to that David Sirota uh, quote. Uh, He sort of finishes up on this. But the point here is that those tempered and nuanced conversations are only able to happen because the demographic at the center of it all is white guys. That is the one group in America that gets to avoid being referred to in aggregate negative terms and gets to avoid being unduly profiled by the nation's security apparatus, which means we are defaulting to a much more dispassionate And sane conversation, one that treats the perpetrators as deranged individuals rather than typical and thus stereotype justifying representatives of an entire demographic. So, yes, we are able to have a more sane and calm conversation about white guys and the problems that white guys have and how to fix the problems that white guys have because magically they're the one demographic in the country who doesn't get all jumbled together and whose individual negative aspects don't get piled on top of every member of the group. Uh, so now, just as a side note, um, I had this generally progressive listener who wrote in a little while ago, and he had gotten himself mixed up with a bit too much of the uh, the, the world of men's rights activists, And now, to be clear, there were too many interesting details from that exchange to get into right now, Um, but there was one, at least, very telling moment uh, that I want to tell you about in which he describes how he always wanted to be a teacher, but now that he is a teacher, he doesn't feel comfortable as a male in, in his words, quote, what has become a feminized field, unquote. And then later in that same conversation, we were going back and forth by email uh, he's sort of rebutting a point about the gender wage gap, and he just points to his own personal perspective. And he says, quote, as a teacher, that's not true. Salary is contractual, unquote. And what he didn't realize is that this is not an argument that supports the existence of pay equality. In fact, it does just the opposite. Teachers are famously underpaid and as he fully recognizes the teaching profession is dominated by women. This is not a coincidence. Uh, so just today, I, I did a quick search. I was trying to better understand why teaching is such a feminized field, right? How did we get to this point? Uh, it wasn't written in stone a long time ago. It's not like a biological truth that all you know women have to be teachers and men shouldn't be or anything uh, ridiculous like that. So how did we get here? And uh, it didn't take long. I came across a New York Times article, Why Don't More Men Go Into Teaching? And so here's just a couple of paragraphs from it. A change in the gender imbalance could sway the way teaching is regarded. Jobs dominated by women pay less on average than those with higher proportions of men. And studies have shown that these careers tend to enjoy less prestige as well. Although teaching was once a career for men, by the time women began entering the workforce in large numbers in the 1960s, teaching, along with nursing, was one of the very few careers open to them. But despite inroads that women have made entering previously male-dominated fields, there has not been a corresponding flow of men into teaching and nursing. Quote, we're not beyond having a cultural devaluation of women's work, said Philip N. Cohen, a sociologist at the University of Maryland, continuing, so that if a job is done primarily by women, people tend to believe it has less value, unquote. So that listener wrote in, who is expressing discomfort as a teacher in what he sees as a feminized career— and what he's actually feeling is the trailing effects of those sexist policies from decades ago when women were driven into the teaching profession because it was one of their only choices. But now, he thinks that men are the ones sort of being oppressed in that circumstance. He certainly feels oppressed by there being a lot of women there, and he feels unwelcome uh, as a man in the teaching profession. But the thing is, he's he's only half wrong because men are... ...also harmed by sexist policies and gender inequality. And so I have no doubt that his personal experience is for it to be very uncomfortable for a number of reasons to be a man in a female-dominated career and to feel socially castrated, as he described himself to me, uh, although for more reasons than just his career choice. But it's important to understand the origins of such things, you know? Female domination of the teaching profession and the associated low-pay and low-prestige are not a victory for feminists. It's a victory for the powers of patriarchy. So if you're a male teacher finding yourself feeling something akin to gender-based oppression, then just know that it's not at the hands of feminism. It's the utterly predictable collateral damage of the patriarchy and sexism that helped form the education system we have today. So that, that that's my aside just about that because I had a... a an actual interaction with a guy who was having those sorts of feelings about his specific circumstance and teaching. But to speak more broadly again, these types of systems of oppression victimize everyone, as evidenced by that story. Uh, it just happens in different ways. So, like, back to the powerful dudes for a minute. Power strips people of part of their humanity. Racism poisons people to think that darker races are inferior for some reason. Sexism poisons people to believe that women are inferior to men. And now, obviously, I don't feel worse for people like Trump and Ailes and O'Reilly and Cosby and Weinstein or any of the others than I feel for the people who they inflicted themselves upon. But I do still actually feel bad for those guys. They are people who lost part of their humanity through their acquisition of power. And that caused them to also lose sight of other people's humanity. And every single one of those dudes ended up sad, angry, and alone in the end. You know, for instance... Trump's life of power has led him to act like a sociopath for decades and has robbed him of his ability to connect with people. He famously has no friendships. He was asked once who his friends were and he didn't have an answer. He could only think of his family members, employees, and business associates. And those are the only people who can stand to be around him. And it's only, you know, because they're related to him or for their own personal, like, economic benefits. And unsurprisingly, he is obviously a very sad and angry dude. That's what happens to these people who lose sight of their humanity and become people who no one can stand to be around. Now, let's go back to the other end of the power spectrum for a minute. And, you know, you have these people who never really had any special power, but they were tricked by these systems of oppression into believing that they did. And I would say that now that a large swath of them are beginning to recognize their lack of power... That trickery is really starting to take effect and they've begun to cast blame in all the wrong directions. So to them, you know, feminism is to blame for men feeling socially castrated rather than toxic masculinity, defining manhood so narrowly that men can feel unmanned at the drop of a hat. You know, there's a list a mile long of things you might accidentally do or say that will cause a flock of brainwashed men's rights activists to revoke your man card, right? Right. And feminists are to blame for feminized careers, like being a teacher, rather than sexism, driving women into the lowest paid careers, thereby driving the wage gap, and devaluing teaching as a career in the minds of citizens of a sexist country. Speaking of which, I think that could even be partly to blame for our waning valuation of education itself. I mean, we all recognize that's a big problem going on right now. That could be the origin. And then there are the immigrants, right? Immigrants and minorities are to blame for you feeling worthless after you've lost your job rather than capitalism being to blame for, first of all, convincing you that your worth comes from your work before then taking that job away from you rather than your worth coming from your connection with family and community. And so that that laid-off dude who's been tricked— is the one who's more likely to demand that his wife continue to cook all of his dinners after she's come home from work while he's been home all day, because that helps prop up his feelings of manhood. Whereas a guy who's more down with equality would much more easily slide into the role and pick up the slack of doing the household chores himself. You know, the first guy is likely to drive his relationship right into divorce, followed by even deeper depression, while the second guy will find, you know, hopefully a new kind of equilibrium within the family while they work through his unemployment together. And honestly, I can understand pretty clearly why so many white guys are taking drugs and killing themselves these days, but it's not because they're right about how terrible their lives are. It's that if I bought into all the bullshit that toxic masculinity wants you to believe, then I can understand how terrible I would feel too. So if you are having any of those kinds of feelings, just know that you are not waking up to a realization that your power is being taken away. You're waking up to the realization that you never had any special power in the first place. So go direct your anger at those who tricked you, not those who want to coexist with you in peace and equality. As always, if you want to comment on this or anything else, the number to dial, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we're putting out there and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington DC my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com